please be seated. Now let's turn in our Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 5, and verses 1 through 11. And as you're uh, turning there, let me say what a privilege it is to be part of your worship here this morning. Special delight uh, to be in a service where neither the liturgists nor the preacher actually have accents, and it's the congregation who have strange accents. And uh, let me say, too, uh, something that struck me as I came into the building uh, earlier on last week, what generosity uh, this congregation has shown to Reformed Seminary in the provision that you have made for them. I am way down the totem pole in Reformed Seminary. I am a Chancellor's Professor, which means I work for the Chancellor Ligon Duncan and do what he says, and when he says go to Houston, I go to Houston. But it's been very moving to see uh, the vision that your elders must have for the future ministry of the gospel uh, here and in other parts of the world by the provision they've made for the seminary. Well, if you thought any of the three of us had accents, your ear is now attuned to the third one, so let us hear God's Word. Therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There was an elderly lady in a congregation I served at home in Scotland who told me that when her mother was a young girl working in an industrial factory in the city of Glasgow and receiving her pay every Friday evening before she went home and receiving that pay in real money, would go to the factory gate where on a Friday evening a beggar would sit and she would give to that beggar part of her weekly pay. My elderly friend told me that her mother was astonished to learn when the beggar died 
that he was actually a millionaire. He had been the heir to a fortune and had known nothing about it and lived as a beggar. And when people tell you stories like that, if you're a pastor and preacher, you immediately begin to see spiritual parallels, and you don't need to be a preacher to see the spiritual parallel there. The fact of the matter, as the great masters of the spiritual life all down through the ages have recognized, is to use the language they have used that many of us live way below the level of the privileges that have been given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would be a rare individual and perhaps an arrogant individual who would say, I consistently live in the level of the privileges of the gospel that Jesus Christ has given to me. And that is certainly not a 21st century spiritual problem. It's a very common problem, but it's not a particularly contemporary problem. And there are, I think, indications, especially in Paul's letters, but also in the letters of the other apostles, it was a situation they frequently encountered, judging by the number of times they encouraged Christian believers to refocus their gaze on all the riches of grace that are given to us in Jesus Christ. And this passage, Romans 5, 1 through 11, is certainly one of those passages, indeed one of the greatest of them. It is packed full. I am on a three-week trip to the United States. I do not let my wife pack my case, because I know if she packs the case, and I unpack it, what I have unpacked will never get back into the case again. And this passage is a little like that. So, I want to try to unpack only a few of the items that are in this passage and leave you to do your own homework on the rest. But there is something in this passage that really helps us, and perhaps you noticed it as we read it together. It is that there is a verb that occurs three times. It serves as a kind of spine that runs through these 11 verses that holds them together. It's the verb rejoice. Paul uses it. You notice in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He uses it again in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, and then he uses it one more time in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think you can tell that there is a kind of ascent, a movement in these three uses of the verb rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. To that, I think we can easily say our amen. But then Paul seems to think there is, there is something more unusual. We are able to say that we rejoice even in our sufferings. And then, as he says in verse 11, even more than that, and this is something that unbelievers find virtually impossible to grasp, 
as Christian believers who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, rejoice even in our sufferings, we rejoice in God Himself because we know who He really is. And it's these three strands of this passage that I want us to try and focus on together. They're, they're very interesting for a number of reasons. One of the reasons they're interesting is because this verb that's translated rejoice here has already appeared earlier on in Romans, but we wouldn't have noticed that from the English translation. Earlier on in Romans, Paul uses the same verb, but it's translated and rightly translated not just as rejoice, but as boast. And the whole argument he had used in the first three chapters of Romans was intended to silence that boasting. And he makes this very clear. He brings us all under the judgment of God. He brings us before the throne of God. And his purpose in doing this, he says, is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world see that it is guilty before God. I remember the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, saying, here is my definition of someone who has become a Christian. He is a man whose mouth has been shut. He is a man whose mouth has been shut. In other words, he has recognized that before the judgment throne of God, all my self-vaunting, all my accomplishments, all my ways of identifying myself, before Him I dare not say, do you know who I am? But before Him my mouth is shut. I cannot plead my own righteousness. And then in Christ there is this great reversal. Paul says, where is boasting? It is excluded. And then when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is a new kind of boasting begins. And you can understand that he has used the term boasting in the previous chapters, and our translators would rather use a different word here, but it's the same idea. I no longer look to myself or exult in myself, but I look to Jesus Christ, and I exult in Jesus Christ, because through faith this grand reversal has taken place. But what of these three strands of Paul's rejoicing? Well, first of all, he says in verse 2, through Christ, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Why and how can we do that? And his answer is pretty clear, isn't it? It's actually the first word in the chapter, although it's not the first word in our translations. But in, 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 in Paul's words, the chapter begins with just this great shout of triumph, justified, therefore. Because we are justified, he says, we are able to rejoice in the hope, in the assurance of the glory of God. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us in the congregation uh, today believe that we are justified through faith in Christ, but the question is, has that, does that justification fill us with the sense of 
exaltation in the hope of the glory of God. How, how is it that knowing you are justified puts that into you? And the answer is this, and it's really important for us as Christian believers to grasp. It is that our justification, our right standing before God, depends on absolutely nothing in me but everything in Jesus Christ. Indeed, I can never actually say that justification is in me. I've always got to recognize that the justification with which I am justified before God is actually the justification before God that Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. And actually, you know, the sooner I understand that my justification is to be found in Jesus and not somewhere in myself, the healthier my Christian life will be. Perhaps I can illustrate what I mean. It would be great if I had a kind of spiritual x-ray vision and could spot the most admired Christian in the congregation, the most mature Christian, the most sanctified Christian, the Christian who had served most faithfully, perhaps the Christian who had suffered most, or a Christian who had spent many years serving the Lord overseas, and, and I could bring her forward to the front of the church. You see, I assume that that person is female and not male. I may be a little prejudiced, but… Um, but then, with this x-ray vision, I could also spot the newest Christian in the congregation. Maybe a young teenager who'd given her heart to the Lord Jesus just a few weeks ago, and I could, she would be embarrassed, they would both be embarrassed, bring her forward here and ask you this question, which of these two people is more justified? Which of them is more justified? You do understand, you do understand, don't you, that this two-week-old baby Christian is as justified as this 70-year-old saintly woman who has served the Lord Jesus all of her life. Absolutely nothing she has done has contributed to her justification. And if you think about it that way, you realize it's only if this is true that justification is going to bring forth this burst of joy because if there is something we do that just adds a little bit to our justification, when do you know you have added enough to your justification for it to be perfect? You'll never know that. But because the righteousness with which you are righteous is actually Jesus' righteousness, you know that the moment you receive Him, the baby Christian, the moment you receive Him, you're given a perfect righteousness, a final righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And it's because of that that, well, you see that the, the burden is lifted, the conscience becomes free, the joy floods in. And you know what it is, as Paul says here, to begin to rejoice in the hope of experiencing, sharing the glory of God. The two realities belong together, justification and rejoicing. And isn't it true that we, we so often fall back into that error that there's something 
there's maybe just something I have done that has added to my justification. And the moment I begin to think that way, the joy begins to go. So, this is the first strand. And I think probably it's still true in our culture that if you have that kind of rejoicing in your life, then even somebody who isn't a believer can look at you and maybe even say, I wish I had your faith. And you want to say to them, it's not my faith you need, it's my Savior you need. He's the one who gives this to me. But then it's the next stage that I think is perplexing to the unbeliever. We not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, says Paul, but he goes on to say more than that, we actually rejoice in our sufferings. And I think we all understand he doesn't mean I like pain. There are little evidences in his letters that he does not like pain. So, he's not a masochist. This isn't something perverse in him. It's not because suffering or affliction or pressure, which is what he's really talking about here, any kind of pressure that is irksome for us. It, it's not because it's painful that he rejoices in it, but because it's productive. And that's the language he uses, isn't it? He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and this hope never disappoints us. Now, if you think about it, there's, there's a very simple logic to what Paul is saying here. He's saying that Christian character is never going to be produced in us so long as we are untested. So, there is a dark side to every Scotsman. You, you understand that. Um, some Scotsmen are completely dark, but there is a dark side to every Scotsman. Here is my dark side. I take a kind of sinister pleasure in being with Christians, especially those Christians who kind of exude the impression that they have it all together. You know, they've cracked the secret of living the Christian life. I have a kind of sinister pleasure on those occasions when they, they just lose it something happens, they get really irritated, it just kind of floods into them, and then they realize they've done this in public, and they become very flustered and a little embarrassed, and they'll say things like, they don't say this in Texas, I'm sure, but they say this in Scotland, I don't know what came over me. I'm usually a very patient person. And what you're thinking is, you're not really a patient person at all, what you actually are is an impatient person who has never really been tested. But now that you've been tested, that impatience has become manifest. And you understand this principle. You don't develop patience by situations that would never be likely to make you impatient. It's like um, when the Olympic Games come round, you know, we all watch different things. I watch the weightlifting. So, I sit in my armchair and I watch these people come on and they lift these 
phenomenal weights. Their knees buckle. They're shaking and shuddering, and they're, they're lifting these weights, and then somewhere off screen, the green light goes, and they just let the thing go, and the whole stage begins to bounce, and, and they stagger off, and I'm sitting there drinking my Coke and thinking, next Olympic Games, that'll be me. <laughs> if I just watch a few more episodes. You don't get there without the stresses and strains of days and weeks and months in the gymnasium and on the road and doing all these exercises. What would possess me to think that I can lift the weight of living the Christian life without the same thing happening? And you see, Paul is saying it's when we see that we can begin to rejoice even in things that are pressures upon us, because we realize, we've been really saying this earlier on together in the service, we realize these are the Heavenly Father's instruments to put what Paul calls tested character into us. And it's interesting what this produces. So, he says, the gospel of justification produces in us the hope of glory. And when God works in us this way and we see what He is reproducing in us, do you notice what He says? He says, this actually produces hope in us too. It produces a hope within our hearts that God is really working, that the gospel is really true. And then do you notice what He adds? He says, this hope does not put us to shame, doesn't let us down. Some of the older translations, it never disappoints us. We have many hopes that are disappointed. Why? Why is gospel hope not disappointed? Because gospel hope is an assurance of a reality we may not fully have tasted, but we have begun to experience it. And you see what he says, this hope of glory doesn't disappoint us because God's love has already been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, some of you may have read a, a book by Jonathan Edwards, the, the great New England theologian uh, called Charity and Its Fruits. It's on 1 Corinthians 13. He has a chapter in there entitled, Heaven, a World of Love. And I think we can, I think we can grasp what Paul is saying here if we think of it this way that when we become believers, God gives His Holy Spirit to us. And in the process of sending His Holy Spirit to us, He, he punctures a little hole in the floor of heaven for the Spirit to come to us. And through that hole, not only does the Holy Spirit come to us, I'm speaking in pictures, you understand, but there is an outpouring into our hearts with the Spirit of the love that is the very atmosphere of heaven. I remember as a young Christian, older Christians used to sing a song, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And we experience that, we experience that very clearly sometimes in worship, don't we? This sense of the, the heavenly atmosphere invading our lives. So, what are we doing? We are already tasting what we will know in full measure 
then. And it's as though the Lord is saying to us, taste this, taste this, because this will give you a reassurance. You're already part and parcel of my purposes to bring you to glory. And so, this is the wonderful reality of the Christian's experience. He or she learns to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and also learns to rejoice in his or her sufferings. I love a statement that was made about a 17th century minister, Richard Sibbs. Somebody wrote about him, of that blessed man, let this just praise be given, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And it's not just Richard Sibbs that's true of. That's true of every Christian believer. That's what Paul is saying. The reason this hope doesn't let us down is because we already have a taste of its final realization, and we enjoy this assurance. Hope in the New Testament is like the wee boy who looks out of his window when he should be in bed one night two weeks before Christmas, and he sees his dad carrying out the back of the truck something covered in a blanket that has two round bits at the end. And uh, somebody says to him, have you any idea what you're going to get for Christmas? And he says with a smile, I hope I'm going to get a new bicycle. It's not in any doubt, but it's not yet fully in his hands, and this is where we are. And then if we fast forward, if we fast forward to verse 11, we see Paul concluding this trilogy. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're able to rejoice even in the pressures we experience. And then what, as I said, seems almost incomprehensible to someone who isn't a Christian we also rejoice in God Himself through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, my question is, how does Paul get there? And I think the answer is, he gets there beginning in verse 6. In verse 5, he had said, we have this wonderful taste of the love of God. But now it's as though he's asking the question, well, how do we know that God really loves us? How do we know that God really loves us? And you know as well as I do, probably better than I do, that our, our world is awash with a kind of Christianity that tells us the way we know God loves us is because we are prospering. The way we know God loves us is because things are going well. And, and we can fall into that mistaken way of thinking too, can't we? God, God is really showing His love to me because things are going so well in my life. Well, if things are going well in your life, it may well be a sign of God really loving you, but don't tell that to the Apostle Paul when he's beaten black and blue, when the wounds are still bleeding when he's in prison, when he's being stoned. Paul, how do you know God loves you then? How do you know God loves you when things are going wrong? 
And I think you understand the importance of that question because many of us who are Christians, when things go wrong, we almost have a kind of default instinct to think, has God stopped loving me? And you see what Paul is doing here is explaining to us how we can be absolutely convinced of the love of God, our Heavenly Father. And it's not by our ability to interpret providence. It's by our focus on what He has given to us in Jesus Christ. And you'll see that here. Um, again, let me, let me read these words echoing the order in which Paul dictated them originally so that we, we can sense that he is trying to highlight something to us. He says in verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time for the ungodly, Christ died. For one, for a righteous person, will scarcely die, though perhaps for a good one, a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, for us Christ died. So, you see, it's like a drumbeat. It's like a drumbeat saying to us, the place you will be persuaded of the love of God, the place where he says God shows, verse 8, or God demonstrates His love to us, is in the cross of Jesus Christ. God loves you like this. And it's interesting how we measure love, isn't it? We, we measure love sometimes by the difference between the, the the lover and the loved one. That's what Cinderella is all about. That's what Hallmark movies are sometimes about. And we measure love by, by the distance that someone would go in pursuit of the loved one. And we measure it by the sacrifices the lover would make for the beloved, and by the gifts the lover would give to the beloved, and by the permanence of the lover's love for the beloved. And it's all here. Paul is helping us to measure the immeasurable character of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ that He gave His only Son for us. And as I look to Him, I am increasingly persuaded that He really loves me. You know, it's, the, it's an interesting thing that, that most people we know who believe in God, even if they're not Christians, always seem to assume that God is love, don't they? It's the one thing He's got to be. The God I believe in is a God of love. But there is nothing in their lives that gives you any evidence they believe in a God of love because they don't believe in the God of love. What they believe in is they, they want a God who will do what they want, and that would be the proof that He really loved them. But that's not the God that the Bible speaks about. The God the Bible speaks about is the God who in Jesus Christ went this enormous distance, made this enormous sacrifice, gives us these extraordinary gifts to demonstrate that we are the beloved of God. 
And the danger is we may be looking in the wrong place. We may be looking to ourselves. We may be looking to our circumstances. And, and Paul is refocusing our gaze on the very heart of the gospel. And as he says later on in Romans 8, 32, dear ones, he says, when you gaze on this gift that God has given to you in His love for you, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that He has given His Holy Spirit to persuade you of His love, you will come to this conclusion, that if He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, then He will spare absolutely nothing to keep us and to bring us home. So, we are millionaires, but we could be living as paupers. And so, here is a place to which we are called to return. And when we know that this is the God who has saved us, then we are brought to be able to say in verse 11 that we rejoice in God Himself for Himself. It's really another way of answering the first question in the Shorter Catechism, isn't it? What are you for? And what are you redeemed for? You're redeemed to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And there is only one way to do that, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So, let me say if if all of this seems, in a sense, to be foreign to your experience, there is a doorway into it, and that doorway is the Lord Jesus Himself. So, friends, whether for the first time or after many, many years of trusting Him, let us look again to our crucified Savior, and hear Him saying to us, God has demonstrated, proved His love to you, in that while you were weak, while you were ungodly, I died for sinners, and therefore for you, come, trust me. Well, let's do that as we come to pray. Our dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You that You have demonstrated to us by Your coming, Your living, Your dying, Your rising, Your ongoing intercession for us. No one loves us the way You love us. No one loves us the way Your Father loves us. No one loves us the way Your Spirit loves us. And so we come and yield ourselves joyfully to You. We rejoice today in the hope of glory. We thank You that You have promised to bring us there, that You will allow nothing to get in the way of Your purposes. And so we come to You in faith and in joy. Pray that we may know more and more of the sweetness of Your grace as we give ourselves to You now in prayer and in song. So, hear us, help us, bless us, we ask in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.